corruption kills. And we actually saw corruption kill when buildings that were supposed to be uh, okay, earthquake good. resistant actually fell when you had fake signatures. And this happened in a school mm. where 30 plus kids died because the superintendent who lived in the school, the school principal, built a house on top of the school with a jacuzzi or a pool mm. with the wrong paperwork and, and it fell. So corruption kills. Welcome to the 15th episode of Global. I'm Sinclair Stafford. And I'm Ryan Maddox. And this is our first time actually co-hosting together, Ryan. I know, and it's an honor already. Oh, stop. For those of you who haven't listened ever or in a long time, as a reminder, Global is a monthly podcast featuring one country per episode where we deliver an on-the-ground look at a rapidly changing world. And for this episode, Sinclair, we'll be looking at Mexico, a country which I thought I knew a lot about, but turns out uh, I was just grazing the surface in some of my classes at Seton Hall. Uh, there's so much more to look at, especially with the history and the current political breakdown. Yeah, I'm really interested to learn more. At least you've taken a class because I can't say that I've got much experience in Mexico at all. So I'm really excited to learn more about Mexico. I bet you're excited, Sinclair. You've been out of the rotation for a little while. You've... I know. I thought I was getting slowly fired. <laughs> <laughs> slowly excluded from, yeah. from hosting. Now, we're happy to have you. And uh, we know you've been prepping for this episode for a while. So what do we need to know about Mexico? What are the fast facts? Mexico has a population of about 129 million people, which actually makes it the 10th largest country by population, just smaller than Russia. <coughs> we have a, uh, an episode about that. <coughs> Lindsey Graham was on it. You should go back and listen to it. <coughs> Thanks, Ryan. Um, and it's slightly larger than the population of Japan. Mexico, in terms of area, is about three times the size of Texas. 93% of the population speak only Spanish, while 6% of the population speak Spanish as well as indigenous languages, and 1% actually only speak indigenous languages. And it's a pretty homogenous country when it comes to religion. They're all Christian, pretty much. 83% Roman Catholic, and the rest are Protestant. So what type of government do they have, Sinclair? Well, Mexico's formal name is the Estados Unidos Mexicanos, or the United Mexican States, which underscores the fact that Mexico has a federal system of government. So while there is a national government, the government also shares power and coordinates with independent state governments, which are directly elected by the public. Hmm. All right, Sinclair, you've given us the fast facts. Let's hear some fun facts or los hechos divertidos. <laughs> so I thought this was really interesting that the oldest university in North America is in Mexico. It's the National University of Mexico and it was founded in 1551. Yeah, that predates a lot of things. And uh, Mexico actually hosts the world's largest population of Spanish speakers, more than Spain or Colombia. Hmm. The Yucatan Peninsula uh, was the center of the ancient Maya civilization. And actually, Mayan speakers still constitute the majority of people in the rural Yucatan and Chiapas Highlands. So it's pretty cool. That's right. They're still speaking an ancient language from an ancient empire. Hmm. So for those of you who listened all the way to the end of our last episode on Gambia, we hinted at this episode with the question, which country once had three presidents in one hour? And of course, the answer is Mexico. So the story behind that is, on February 18th, 1913, President number one, President Maduro, was overthrown by General Victoriana Huerta. And he didn't ever just overthrow the president, but he overthrew everybody in the line of succession, except for the foreign minister named Las Corrine. So therefore, Las Corrine became president in a semi-legitimate fashion. And then he had Las Corrine appoint Huerta uh, interior minister. And then Huerta asked Las Corrine 
to resign, passing the presidency on to Huerta. So that's how Mexico had three presidents in one hour. Um, and actually, Las Corrientes' presidency is the shortest in history. Longer than I've been president of Mexico. <laughs> could still put it on his resume. I, that's what I was going to say. <laughs> so actually, there's a lot of also fun things to know about Mexico City. It's the largest city in North America with 8.9 million people and the second largest in the Western Hemisphere, only behind Sao Paulo. Which is crazy to think about. I mean, you have New York City, Los Angeles, you know, mm-hmm. that's just North America. I mean. Mexico City is huge. Yes, <laughs> that is the takeaway. Um, One-sixth of Mexico's population lives in Mexico City, and it's also built on a lake, so it's sinking at a rate of six to eight inches per year. That is crazy. I the know. whole city is going lower every year. Yes. Six to eight inches. I can't Can you imagine, imagine like yeah. the buildings just slowly? Right, like almost visibly sinking. Oh, my goodness. And like, how does the mayor... Right. Organize things right. based on... It's got to be so complicated dealing with the, the municipal... Yeah. How does the municipal government even deal with that? Mexico City is also the oldest city in North America, and it's one of the highest elevated major cities in North America. It's elevated, Sinclair? So why are we even worried about this six to eight <laughs> inches? It's fine. It's coming It's coming down with the rest of us. Yeah. So, Ryan, I know you're getting married soon, and so you might be learning a lot about flowers right now. Well, that's true, Sinclair. The, uh, the flower decision has been weighing heavy on us, and thank you for updating our listeners and letting them know I'm officially off the market. Yeah, I'm sure our listenership is going to tank dramatically Of now. course, it's the voice. <laughs> so, well, here's a little flower fact you can impress your fiancé with. So, you know the red poinsettia that we all use during Christmas? They actually originated in Mexico, and they're named after the first U.S. ambassador to Mexico, Joel Roberts Poinsettia. Well, thank you, Joel. <laughs> yes, thank you. Ryan, why don't you tell us about our guests? I think we've got a really cool lineup this episode. Our first guest is Dolia Estevez. She's had a long and impressive career in journalism, uh, including working as a contributor for Forbes magazine. She's also worked with the Woodrow Wilson Center and the Mexican Council on Foreign Relations. Buenos días y gracias por la invitación. Perfecto. <laughs> and our second guest is Richard Miles. He is a senior fellow a deputy director of the Americas Program and director of the U.S.-Mexico Futures Initiative at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. A distinguished title for a distinguished man. Yeah. He has 20 years of experience as a foreign service officer at the U.S. State Department, and he's also served as a an intelligence officer with the U.S. Army. Thanks for having me. And finally, we'll have Tony Garistazu. He is IRI's current resident program director in Mexico, residing in Mexico City. He is the chief of party for our Haiti program as well. He's had an illustrious career working in the public and private sectors on Latin American issues. He's also lectured at the Universidad del Istmo on international trade. Great to be here. A long-time listener, first-time guest. I hope you invite me again. It's been amazing. Awesome. Let's get started. Tony, if we gave you the admittedly impossible task of summing up Mexico's history in five minutes or less, where would you start? Where to start? Well, um, I think I would divide it into maybe like eight phases. You have the Mexico Antiguo or the ancient Mexico. Then you have the colonial era uh, with the Spanish, uh, about 300 years, 1500, 1800, around that time. Then you have independence through the consolidation of the Republic. And then you have a very, very tough 30 years called uh, El Porfiriato, Porfirio Diaz, uh, the dictator, uh, 1876, about 1911. Uh, then from there, you have the revolution. So the Mexican Revolution, a very important time in uh, Mexican history, which actually uh, takes us basically to where we are today. And the revolution was the birth of the PRI, of the Institutional Revolutionary Party, uh, which was created in 1929 and basically has dominated politics ever since. Uh, well, at least from 1929 to 2000, when they were the only party in existence. And then from the pre, another major sort of critical juncture, if you will, is the NAFTA agreement, I think, in the 1990s. Uh, that sort of really changed Mexico's economy 
its interdependence, globalization, its relationship with the United States. Um, and then from there, another critical juncture is 2000, when you had the change of, uh, of party from the PRI, the Institutional Revolutionary Party, to the National Action Party, uh, which actually governed from 2000 to 2012. And they're a big contender for this year's election, so we'll see what happens. So those, those eight phases, they sum it up pretty well. Um, I'm just wondering, could you take us through how Mexico evolved from being the sort of authoritarian dictator type system to being one that's more multi-party, pluralistic, democratic? And, and, and that's a very fair question. You have El Porfiriato, which lasted 30 years through 1911. That's a dictatorship. That's, that's a dictatorship. Uh, but a lot of folks say that Mexico has been and, and is the perfect dictatorship, which is very interesting because after the Porfiriato, you had the revolution 1911. And then you had, when, when, when Porfirio left and, uh, and went to France, you had all these other factions coming in to sort of rule Mexico. They were all assassinated between 10 years. But then you had the birth of the PRI. And what the PRI was able to do was able to consolidate all the bases in the rural areas in all of Mexico and bring them together. And why do they call it a perfect dictatorship? Because they were able to control all aspects of power at the local, state, and federal level. Mm. And the PRI was just able to, by, by political cronyism, uh, by, by buying of votes, they controlled all aspects of the institutions of Mexico. So they were able to they win elections. Absolute power. Absolute, absolute power. Yeah. Absolute power. But then the PRI, you know, getting into more of the, of, the, of the modern era in the early 1990s, there were a lot of reforms. And what did the reforms do? They allowed more opposition parties. That's how the PRD was born in 1989. So because they were allowed this political opening, they came in uh, and they were allowed to vie for, for the elections. Then you had constitutional reforms. So you had about eight constitutional reforms from the 1970s to 2014. And you had uh, reforms of the electoral law. You had reforms to the opening of political parties. You had reforms uh, creating an actual, an actual uh, institute for, for, for elections, to monitor elections, to conduct elections. So you've had these pockets of openings. And in 2000, it actually burst. And they were, uh, and, and, and the PAN was actually able to win because there was this political opening and there was this ability of, of other political parties to be able to come in and actually have a fair fight. Delia, so what was that process like? Uh, the process was actually not that long. It started pretty much uh, in the 80s. A turning point was the earthquake of 1985. Why was that? It was a turning point because uh, the government's uh, inability to respond to the needs of the people mm -hmm. in a moment of dire crisis uh, gave birth to Mexico's civil society. As a result of that, there there was more free press, other freedoms, and that became uh, political dissent. So Richard, this is kind of like an in-depth question for us to start off with, but uh, what I find interesting in Mexico's history is the back and forth between liberal and authoritarian tendencies and the progressive versus conservative ideological struggle. Could you put Mexico's history in that light for us? Sure. As you point out, you, you've had this sort of seesaw back and forth between kind of broadly speaking authoritarian type governments versus um, more sort of liberal democratic governments with mixed results. So for a little mini Mexico history lesson, you know, you go back to the mid-19th century, uh, you have a, a war of the reform, it was called, um, and basically the first step of liberal, liberalization in Mexico. Mm -hmm. um, that kind of fell apart, and the, the French intervened, 
they're there for seven years. Then again, another period of sort of disarray. And then you finally get sort of the first strong man, and not the first, but the most significant in Mexican history, Porfirio Diaz. And during that time, roughly a 35-year span, you see kind of a mirror image of what we saw in the, 19, in the 20th century with the PRI in that you have a very strong authoritarian type of government. But on the other hand, you also get a lot of progress on uh, trade increased, public health increased, safety increased, which was in, in tune with what was going on with the rest of the world. Then after that, Mexican Revolution, big period of chaos up until basically 1940 almost. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the pre is in power for almost the entire, the, the whole rest of the century. The trade-off that you get, again, is you get stability, you get sort of safety, you get progress, but you also get corruption, you get cronyism, uh, you get rigged elections, you get censored press, and so on. And then fast forward to where we are now, in which you have much more competitive political landscape. But you're right, it's gone back and forth probably on these 10, 20, 30-year cycles. Yeah, and I think that's the bargain that dictatorships try to make all over the world is I'll provide you with security um, and growth and you know jobs if you just don't question my rule. Right. But so they tend to fall apart when they can't make that bargain yeah. anymore. And the important thing to remember about the Mexican version of dictatorship is that Mario Vargas Llosa in 1990 called it the perfect dictatorship. And I think what he meant by that was it wasn't a totalitarian dictatorship like you saw with the Soviet Union, Nazi Germany, Mao's China. You didn't have ton, you know prisoner camps and genocide. You had a hard, unfair system, but it, it didn't have the level of human rights abuses you saw in the rest of the in the world. So it's sort of a tolerable dictatorship, or in his words, the perfect dictatorship. Mm-hmm. And do you think Mexicans accepted that trade-off historically, and do they accept well, it? Well, you know, it's an interesting question. You, you could argue that they did and they do, because there was a poll that came out uh, last year. There's a Every year or so, they, the USAID sponsors this polling in Latin America on views about democracy. And the standard question is, one of the standard questions is, would you support a military coup in certain circumstances? And last year, Mexico scored the highest in the region on that. Almost half of the country said they would support a military coup in two circumstances, one of high violence or high corruption, both of which (laughs) you have in Mexico. Now, by the way, that, that number in the United States is disturbingly high, too. That number is above... It's in the 20, 25% range in the United States. So, but still, it's very high in Mexico. I had no, no idea. Yeah, and that's not to argue that we're about to see one. Right. I, I would not argue that at all. But it, to answer your question, there's this feeling there that, yeah, there's this trade-off that, you know, maybe it is worth having a strong man. At the same time, I, w- I thought it was kind of cool that they have a pretty uh, long tradition of um, liberal not politics, but just uh, liberalism with the La Reforma, the Constitution they laid out, um, you know, those are Republican values. It is, but there are, again, some significant differences that I think made their version not as stable and that I think the main difference between sort of Mexico and the United States in that regard is that you you didn't really get the development of competing institutions. You only got one. You only got one. Right. It was sort of, you, you have one flavor, and if you like it, great. If you don't, too bad. So, Dolia, you were around for the birth of NAFTA. Uh, when was that? And can you tell us a little bit more? 1994. 94, okay. Is yes. There... The negotiations began in 1992, and NAFTA went into effect in the beginning of 1994 which coincided with uh, a major development, which was the uprising of the uh, Zapatistas in Chiapas in the south. NAFTA deserves 
uh, a chapter in itself. Yeah, I'm sure. uh, so um, I'm just going to say that for me, NAFTA was uh, symbolizes a historical reconciliation between two neighbors, which have been their relationship. They have had a history of uh, wars and distrust. So NAFTA was a marriage a contract, a marriage contract uh, that ended a long and turbulent uh, courtship. That's how I put it. And uh, aside from economic and trade benefits for both Mexico and the United States, NAFTA was also perceived as a way to bring Mexico both economically and politically, more in tune with the United States. Yeah, from what I understand, NAFTA was supposed to raise wages in Mexico, but that didn't happen as much as they thought it would. And I understand also that Mexicans have different perceptions about NAFTA. Because not everybody benefited from, the, as you say, the, the, the Mexican uh, wages are way below, which is one of the incentives that of immigration. Mexican immigrants coming here, they can make, you know, in an hour what they make in a week or a month. Uh, I'm exaggerating on that one, but the, the, dif- the difference between wages is really very, very profound. Tony, could you tell us a little bit more about uh, the main political parties in Mexico and how they came to be? Yeah, and that's actually very interesting because we're having an election this year. We've got three major parties and a brand new party. So we have four parties. So you have the PRI, uh, the Institutional Revolutionary Party, which was uh, created uh, during the revolution, uh, started in 1929. That's the party that has actually governed the country for 70 years, and now it's in, in power again. Then you have the National Action Party, which was created in 1939, and it's a humanistic political party of, of that sort of ideology. Um, it's one of the most ancient uh, opposition parties uh, up to the pre, and the ones that actually won the elections in, in 2000 under President Vicente Fox. Their candidate this year, Ricardo Anaya, is, uh, is in the actual second place uh, in, the, in the elections in July. And then you have the Revolutionary uh, Democratic Party, which was founded by Cuatehema Cárdenas, which is actually the son of one of the founders of the PRI, uh, Lázaro uh, Cárdenas. Uh-oh, so not following families, uh, kind of, uh, that, that, mad. That, that's right, you know, there's, they're, they're like, the, um, you know, those cousins that are always fighting, if you will. Uh, but uh, the uh, Cárdenas was very discontent with what was going on in the PRI. Uh, so they created the Revolutionary Democratic Party, which is actually a left-wing party uh, in Mexico. And then, interesting enough, uh, we have a fourth party that sort of blossomed, if you will, in 2015, uh, Andres Manuel López Obrador, uh, who was actually was in the PRI first, then he was in the PRD. And then I guess he didn't just didn't like being in the PRD because they didn't let him be president or run for president, so he created his own party, um, sort of this fourth party um, in 2014, I'm sorry, and he contested in 2015 elections. But it's a very interesting party because it's very, uh, very populist, very sort of surrounded around López Obrador, the Morena Party, and his campaign slogan is, let's make history. And he's actually in first place right now. And Tony, if you can, could you kind of give us a description of how the parties line up in a spectrum, a political spectrum? Well, you have the Revolution Democratic Party is a, is a left to center party. Uh, the Morena Party is a little bit more left to them. Um, the National Action Party, sort of the center right party. And the pre, they're kind of everywhere. They're kind of in the, they're very strong on economic policy, a little bit more social on, uh, a little bit more to the left on social policy. They kind of 
mix and match. It's kind of hard to pin them down. They're more populist, if you if 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 you will. So Dolia, you cover Mexico's billionaires for the Forbes, you know, Forbes magazine. Mm-hmm. How much power do these individuals hold? Mexico's billionaires are very powerful economically. They control a lot. When you talk about Mexican billionaires, you have to think about twenty families. Uh, and those 20 families control 10% of Mexico's uh, gross domestic product. Wow. And uh, they control 50% of Mexico's stock market. Hmm. So that, that tells you the power they have, 20 families, wow. which is one of the problems we have in Mexico. Um, there's no distribution of wealth or um, wages. Would you classify Mexico as oligarchic? Or what would you say to people who accuse Mexico as oligarchic? No, I think Mexico is actually can be best defined as a kleptocracy. Mexico's uh, corrupt leaders uh, use their power against the people and through embezzlement and other acts of corruption, loot the state resources and wealth in order to extend their personal wealth and political Power. So, Tony, you mentioned um, cor- corruption being in, uh, a perennial issue, um, but Mexico has recently completed its first year under a new justice system, yeah. I understand. Um, could you tell us about the reforms compared to the old system and what the effects of those reforms have been? Yeah, actually, um, Mexico under President Calderón made a constitutional reform uh, to change uh, from the old, you know, civil system to a more those to the penal code more focused focused on perception of innocence. In 2016, uh, that system came into be, in, into effect across all 32 states. Unfortunately, not all not all 32 states are ready for it, nor have they implemented it. So there's a there's a lack of political will. There's a lack of understanding of the system. One of the things that that we're trying to work on is the alternative mechanisms uh, for solving controversies. What they call mask in Spanish, mecanismos alternos para solución de controversias. It's actually alternative justice mechanisms, which are very important because it goes to the heart of a lot of the problems that go on, which is neighbor to neighbor, you're parking in my yard, what are you, the track, things like that that could really easily be solved at the local level with civic judges. But again, folks don't understand. So what happens? They go to court, they go to criminal court, so it's a lot more expensive, things take a lot more time. So this alternative mechanism, what they try to do is just to resolve some of the issues that can be resolved that are not, you know, they're not homicide, I mean, you know, very specific issues, civil issues. So what's IRI's role on this? Well, what IRI is doing, we're actually working across 15 states, helping to promote this alternative mechanism for solving controversies, like as I mentioned, mask in Spanish. And what we're doing is we're working at the state level um, with the state executive, representatives, and training them on these, on the masks. But not only them, we're also working with civil society so they understand we're doing uh, community awareness campaigns across 15 states and basically working, but we're also, we're working not only with civil society, but working with first responders, fire folks, fire men and women. We're working with police. It's funny because we're sort of the the, the, the oddball out in some of these meetings that we attend in terms of partners. We have all these lawyers that are talking about, well, with Article 1.2 and yeah, the regular citizens doesn't understand. I mean, the, the specific, but we're doing it in ways that everyone can understand. Uh, it's, it's a very important initiative for, for our government uh, as part of the Merida initiative to support these because it's, uh, because it's, it's extremely important for, for, for Mexico's democratic consolidation and, for, and, for, and, and honestly for the rule of law. Dolia, 
What is the current state of drug cartels in Mexico, and what are the current strategies to combat them? Well, the current state of uh, affairs is pretty, it's pretty bleak. Um, the main strategy has been the use of military force uh, to decapitate cartels, arrest or kill as many traffickers as possible. And this strategy uh, has failed. After 12 years, because we have had a continuous war on the cartels for 12 years, two uh, six-year terms in Mexico, the presidency is six years with no re-election. Uh, after these 12 years uh, of the same policies, uh, violence has increased by official statistics, and the number of people killed, killed has increased, and the cartels are more powerful, are as powerful or more powerful than in the beginning. And for me, uh, this picture, this situation, uh, demands an urgent review of the strategy and uh, perhaps changing, changing the strategy because so far it hasn't worked. The current government continues to do the same. A lot of people in the government, especially in, uh, in states, are colluded with uh, traffickers, some of them by its own will, other ones because they fear for their lives, they, they are threatened if they don't collaborate with the traffickers, they'll be killed. Uh, so in some regions of Mexico, um, there's some regions that are failed. I won't say Mexico is a failed state, like there was a narrative a few years ago here in, this, in Washington, but they are, there certainly are areas of Mexico which are controlled by the power of the cartels. A war is raging in Mexico's border towns as rival drug cartels battle for control. In the scene of horror, the Mexican government has declared its own war on the drug barons. It seems powerless to stem the tide of bloodshed. Felipe Calderón, when he came in in 2006, Felipe Calderón is uh, one of the presidents of the PAN uh, that was before the current president. Uh, he uh, made a pact with George Bush and they uh, signed an agreement called the Merida Agreement. The U.S. helped in this strategy. So Washington has been back in this failed strategy of using military force, not the police, because the police in Mexico are very weak, badly trained, badly paid, and very corrupt. So they brought the military into the streets. They were reluctant, but they did it. And they're still there after 12 years, and it is not clear when they're going to go back to the barracks. So, Richard, could you describe Mexico's overall foreign policy now? First of all, what we see now is uh, significantly different than even just a couple of decades ago, when Mexico, up until I'd say, oh, I don't know, 2000, 2002, had a strict policy of what they called non-intervention, meaning we don't mess with other countries' uh, internal policies or politics, whatever. And it was because of their history, you know, so here they'd been invaded by the French and had a French king or emperor for seven years, invaded by the United States a couple of times. So they didn't participate, for instance, in UN peacekeeping missions. They didn't participate in any sort of international um, activities like that, certainly with armed forces. And then they're very reticent to comment publicly on human rights abuses or anything like that. Um, and now they are actually participating in UN peacekeeping missions, very limited, but they are participating. They were comment on things like Venezuela, uh, human rights abuses in Cuba, which is significant. 
and uh, Iran, Syria, et cetera. So that's a huge change. The other big part of that is their cooperation with the United States, which is on the security angle, which used to be one of the third rails of Mexican politics. You just did not cooperate with U.S. security forces. But you mentioned that they have become more vocal on Venezuela. What's their role with that crisis? Well, there's um, something called the Lima Group, uh, among others, that are trying to resolve the crisis in Venezuela. And uh, over time, you know, it sort of started kind of trying to be neutral, but the government of Venezuela has been so bad and so dictatorial uh, that even countries that started out as like, well, you know, we're just neutral arbiters are like, look, this has got to stop. Um, the Maduro government either has to step down or significantly concede points of the opposition. So to see countries like Mexico saying that um, is, is a, a pretty big deal. Richard, what about Mexico's relationship with China? Yeah, I mean, China is making um, fairly aggressive play in the whole region to try to increase trade and investment. On the trade side, they've been pretty good. Investment, at least the numbers look good. But from what I've heard anecdotally, and uh, a lot of times the promised investment doesn't show up. So you announce a big, huge, multi-billion-dollar deal, and it never quite actually happens. So yeah, Mexico is no different. They're, China's trying to invest more money there. A, lot, a lot's going to change, or a lot will depend on if NAFTA stays in place, if those zero percent trade barriers stay in place or not. And if they don't, then you're going to find multinationals trying to decide. Should we continue to expand or build a factory in Mexico, or should we just cut to the chase and build in China? Uh, right now, it's a huge advantage to Mexico, obviously, because it's a 0% tariff. But if that were to go away, you'd see people starting to make, or companies starting to make different decisions. Tony, these upcoming elections are being called an election of firsts. Why is that? It's really the first time these constitutional reforms in 2004 are going to be tested. They had a small elections or um, midterm elections, if you will, in 2017. There were some problems in Coahuila and other states. So this would be the really first time. It's the, it's it's a massive election. So you have uh, seats for about 3,500. And Tony, that's all three levels of government, isn't it? Yes, that's a state, local, federal. You have congressional elections. You have the House. You have the, 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 the Chamber of Deputies. You have the Senate you have for governors in nine states, you have mayors. It's also the first time that um, the Mexicans are brought up to be able to vote for the congressional representatives in several states, which is very important. It's also the first time you're going to have four major, major parties, four, not just the three that I mentioned, but Morena is a contender, uh, which is going to skew the system a little bit, which is good. I mean, you know, which is very good. Um, another first is you have independent candidates for the first time. They've got to get a couple million uh, signatures to be on the ballot, but they're getting there. So, Dolia, would you mind giving giving us a picture of who the candidates are, maybe the parties and the coalitions, and what platforms they're really running on? There's three main candidates. I'll start with uh, Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador, also known as AMLO, uh, because he is leading the polls. And he's supported by a coalition, which is called Together We'll Make History. And it's led by Morena, which is his party, relatively new party. The second, the second candidate in the polls, it's uh, Ricardo Anaya. And he's supported by the PAN and supported also, funny enough, by what's ever left of the PRD. So you have a, the conservative right-wing uh, party, PAN, with whatever was left of the left-wing PRD party. This guy, Ricardo Anaya, is very, is very young. But nevertheless, um, in 
very few months, he's been able to close the gap between in the polls between uh, Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador and himself. He's the number two, not the, the, the pre is the number three in the polls. And everybody thought that it was going to be the pre and, and Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador, the two leading candidates. It's not like that. It's Anaya and it's Lopez Obrador, the two leading candidates. So who's the pre-candidate, the candidate for PRI? The pre-candidate is Jose Antonio Meade, and he is supported by the PRI and some PRI satellite parties, and he's trailing in the polls and has been trailing in the polls for the past, since December, or since he was an, it was announced that he was going to be the, the PRI candidate. He's a technocrat. He's a, he used to be finance minister, secretary of uh, foreign affairs. He's held like five different uh, cabinet posts under the not only the PRI, the, the, current, the current administration, but also under the previous PAN administration. He was named by the PRI as their candidate, even though he is not a militant, a PRI militant, because the PRI is so discredited that they thought that they had a better chance to, uh, to win the elections if they put someone not too closely identified with the, political, the PRI political machine. So, Tony, is it the first election where we have these oddball coalitions as well? It's not the first time you have these coalitions, but it, you, it's the first time that you have these, like you mentioned, oddballs, because you have folks from the left or from the right, the evangelicals or the left. Um, it is the first time. It's the first time that you have major political parties like the PAN and the PRD actually forming one solid coalition, which is very interesting because politically they're opposite spectrums, but yet they come together to try and beat. Originally, they thought they were trying to beat the PRI, but now they, they know that they have to beat the uh, the Morena, which is very interesting. Some of the polling, even though Morena is on top, some of the polling puts the PAN and the PRD or Ricardo Anaya, which is which is their their candidate. He's actually gaining a lot of traction uh, in the election. So you know, if Meade somehow gets out of the race or goes down, the folks the folks from Meade will vote for Anaya. Interestingly, those that will vote that let's say they don't vote for Lopez Obrador, they may vote for Anaya. So you have the left, the right, left, middle. Who knows? I'm getting I'm, I'm getting very confused. <laughs> So you mentioned earlier that corruption is going to be one of the major issues at stake in the election. Um, so what what are the candidates' positions on that and, and what's going on there? Well, all the candidates are, are for combating corruption. Right. They don't have policies yet. I guess that, that'll sort of come out once the, the official election campaign season starts. But Mexico, uh, apart from the justice reforms, they also had an anti-corruption law that was also passed, uh, the national anti-corruption law and the state anti-corruption law. Uh, this is it's a very unique system because uh, you have a law in place and then you have sort of committees that oversee this laws, one of them of, of which is our citizens. But one of the problems is citizens don't have a lot of power. They can they can say, well, this is not being done. Then they'll tell the government. The government says, yeah, yeah, yeah. But nothing happens. Not all, just like the justice reforms, not all states have implemented the state anti-corruption reforms. One of the major, 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 major issues, I want to say major one more time because it's very important, <laughs> is the fact that they have to, uh, under this law, you have to have a, an anti-corruption prosecutor. In each state, there's a handful of states that have one. And those that do don't have a work plan. I don't want to mention. And if you're listening, you know who you are. Uh, <laughs> they don't have a work plan. Their budget hasn't been passed. You know, so it's, it's, it's very tough. And, you know, I was in Mexico City with, uh, in the earthquake in September uh, 2008, uh, 17, And corruption kills. And we actually saw corruption kill when buildings that were supposed to be 
uh, earthquake resistant actually fell when you had fake signatures. And this happened in a school Mm. where 30 plus kids died because the superintendent who lived in the school, the school principal, built a house on top of the school with a jacuzzi or a pool Mm. with the wrong paperwork. And, and it fell. So corruption kills. So this is a major, major issue. And the state anti-corruption system, if it's actually put into place, is a phenomenal model. Mm-hmm. It's a phenomenal model because you've got the in, 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 you're supposed to have independent prosecutors in each state. You're supposed to have citizens that are part of these committees that help sort of mitigate some of these laws and provide uh, uh, ideas and suggestions and policy policies to the government. And in a country like Mexico, where again. Corruption kills. Not only buildings fall down, but you know we've had some of our partners who've actually gotten calls from the government saying, "Calm down, Tiger. Why are you talking about these things? Let's 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 keep it down." So it's 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 an amazing issue. And me living in Mexico, I, I mean, I see it. Right. I see it. Richard, what do you think is the greatest challenge facing Mexico in the next five or ten years? I think it's trying to develop and strengthen these these institutions. There's this sense of like with the court system of impunity that even when someone is found out. You know, say a corporate executive is found of taking a bribe, it's like nothing happens. So people are like, well, great. You know, so you have like these nonprofits or investigative journalism and they'll splash it all over the front page and somebody's busted for, uh, you know, fancy cars and new house and everyone sort of knows where the money comes from and then that's it. End of story. Nothing happens. And each time are, you know, Mexicans hopeful that this will change? Like they. Well, this is part of what I think what we're seeing in Mexico now may be analogous to what we saw here in 2016 and that the level of anger, voter anger at what they perceive as a system uh, is high enough to where they'll, they're will they willing to take a gamble um, and they don't really care. Uh, that, that anger is sort of palpable that you saw in 2016. Mm-hmm. Um, I, it's funny, I was talking to a senior Mexican diplomat about a month ago and I was saying, you know, I think Lopez Obrador, the left-wing guy, is going to win. And he goes, oh, don't underestimate the pre, the party machinery. They're going to pull out all the stops. They know how to grease the skids. And... And it reminded me of myself right. in February 2016 telling someone, like, wait until Jeb unleashes his ads <laughs> in Iowa. It's going to be all over. Yeah. And so I think that's maybe what we're seeing here. It's a brace ourselves mm-hmm. yeah. kind of thing. Yeah. That's interesting. What does Mexico need help with, I guess, more holistically? What they really, I think, ultimately need is a system more that's going to move them from um, kind of a, what's called a doing economy to a knowledge economy. Because where they're kind of stuck at is that they can compete – say, in manufacturing on price. Um, But ultimately, the only way a country is really going to get richer is if you add more value, right, to that that whole process. So I took a look um, a couple months ago at sort of the state of innovation in Mexico, just using OECD statistics like uh, risk capital, venture capital, number of patents, R&D spending, and like Mexico's on the absolute bottom of all those indicators. I mean, really bad. Which surprised me. I thought it would have been higher. And so I think until you get that virtuous circle going of, you know, companies that are innovating and uh, improving and adding productivity or value, Mexico's going to be stuck at kind of this um, bottom tier of countries that are just competing on low price, for instance, wages. And and wages, I mean, one of the reasons why we saw the political debate here is that the wage wage differential is still huge. Average Wage in, in Mexico is like a tenth of uh, what it is in the United States. Part of it's cultural. Sort of there's, there's not that same risk startup culture uh, that you need to have to, to, to get going a, you know, a new industry, particularly in the high end. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, there's that. And then I think they continue to need help on things like uh, security. 
because the violence, uh, last year they had their most violent year ever, that they've been recording statistics on this, 29,000 homicides. So they, they, you know, court system, police system, military intelligence, they still need a lot of that. So, Dolia, what are your thoughts on the future democratic trajectory of Mexico? Well, I think it depends on what happens on July 1st, frankly, because if the elections are clean and the results are credible, Mexico would uh, have made a giant step forward towards becoming a legitimate and credible and real democracy. But if the elections are fraudulent and messy, uh, Mexico's risks uh, falling into some sort of uh, ungovernability and social turmoil. So I think it's early. It's too early to say whether there's going to be a reversal in the process that we that Mexico has initiated since 1988 or before, or a leap forward. Yes, so definitely a lot depends on this election, like you said. Yeah, these elections are crucial. So, Tony, we ask this question at the end of every episode. It's a little bit more lighthearted than what we just covered. If an international time capsule was shot off into deep space, what would be included to represent Mexico? Well, I have a couple of things. Uh, but one I think that's that's very important is the Pupalvu. Pupalvu is actually an ancient Mayan a book that talks about the world and civilization. It's one of the, it's, it's sort of comparable to Catholic's Bible. Uh, I've seen copies of it. It's it's pretty amazing. What I think one of the most important, and maybe I'm biased because um, I think we've got a got a great Mexican Mexico team. I would say Francisco Lajes Chilaquiles. What are those? I don't oh, know. Chilaquiles. <laughs> oh, you, you have to experience that in uh, in Mexico City. But Francisco makes a mean chilaquiles. It's basically chicken with uh, tortilla chips, cheese, and sauce, and it's just amazing. So I will put his his mother's recipe in that time capsule because everyone needs to needs to try it. It's just amazing. It's up there with the Mayan Bible. Yeah. <laughs> Mayan Bible and this amazing chicken food, yeah. Mexican what, food dish. Or the other way around. I don't know. Oh, yeah, yeah, I, don't yeah. know. I, I mean, I don't know. I'm just biased. <laughs> Ryan, if our listeners were only going to remember three things about this episode, what would be the first takeaway they should remember? First, as Tony said, corruption kills. Uh, if you were to grease the wheels on a scaffolding permit, that won't matter 90% of the time. Uh, but when an earthquake hits, it really can be a matter of life or death. Second takeaway is that the 2018 general elections are going to be critical for Mexico, as the winner is going to de- define the uh, NAFTA negotiations and bilateral relations with the U.S. for the next two decades, as well as a number of other wide-ranging issues. And last, I think it's pretty interesting to see Mexico abandoning its previous non-interventionalism, opting for uh, playing a larger role in the region. Right, and I think if they do that, they're going to redefine regional politics for years to come. I'd really like to thank Dolia Estevez for being with us on the show. She's an absolute wealth of information. And if you're interested in Latin American politics, you have to follow her on Twitter. You can follow her at Dolia Estevez. Um, and if you're interested, she's written a book on the U.S. ambassadors to Mexico since Jimmy Carter's administration called The Ambassadors. Or El Embajador. Uh, thanks, Ryan. 
And gracias miles to Richard Miles. It was very kind of him to visit our offices and share his expertise. Richard is actually a competitor of ours. He hosts a podcast called 35 West, discussing the 35 countries of the Western Hemisphere. After you've listened to the other 14 global episodes, go ahead and check his out. You can follow his work on Twitter at CSIS Americas. And of course, we need to thank uh, our resident program director, Tony Garastazu in Mexico, um, for a very animated and entertaining conversation on uh, Mexico's politics. Definitely learned a lot. And um, you wouldn't believe how long his CV is. He's, he's really an expert on all things Mexico and Latin America. You can follow him on Twitter at Garastazu Tony. G-A-R-R-A-S-T-A-Z-U, Tony. Thanks for the spelling lesson. You're welcome. We've heard a lot of beautiful Mexican music on the episode today. Of course, starting with the Mexican national anthem, as well as music from Vincente Fernandez, Luis Miguel, Jesse and Joy, and Natalia La Forcade. Many thanks to our team in Mexico City for our musical recommendations. And if you like what you heard today, leave us a rating. It helps people find us. That's right. Leave a comment for us. Tell your friends. And remember, next month is actually Introduce a Friend to a Podcast Month, celebrated nationally, of course. So go ahead and tell your friends. Tell your grandma. Tell your auntie. Your tia. Your abuela. Your abuelita. If there's a particular country you want to hear us cover, tweet at us at IRI Global. Until next time. Hasta luego. Well, if you're a loyal listener, you know how these things work. It's time for our hint. What do you got for me? Our next episode is on a country that is 25% uninhabitable due to a nuclear disaster. Wow. 25% of the land? Yep. And it is not the obvious ones. That's giving a lot away. (laughs) (laughs) You've got a choice out of three and you probably know two of them. It's not that one. So listeners, if you know the answer to that hint, leave a comment on iTunes or tweet at us. We'll give you a shout out in the next episode. Adios, hasta pronto, hasta luego.